Inside, it's comfortable. Inside a house, inside a family, inside a routine. But what if we widen our view beyond the fence across the street? Outside, we find people struggling with loneliness, poverty, families that don't look like ours or without a safe family at all. Jesus didn't call us to live by our neighbors. He called us to love our neighbors. Same passage that we read at last week. 
And last week we looked at the question that the lawyer asked, right? The lawyer asked the question of who is my neighbor? And last week as we dove in, we began to define who is our neighbor. Now it's been rightly said, and some of you knew this as you walked away, that our neighbor is anybody that we meet. But last week we we leaned in a little bit differently on that and said that neighboring starts next door. While it's true that our neighbor is everybody, it starts next door. And so, and we continued that to say that the people that we are next to is in the four areas that God has placed us in, right? God has placed us in the churches that we attend. If you don't believe that, we're very glad that you're here, but we believe that God brought you here today. And we're so thankful that he did. We also believe that God places us in the places that we play at or that we do social activities in, right? He knows the things that we like. And so he's constructed an outlet for us to do that at and with. He also constructed the places where we work. And then finally, if those other three are correct, then how much more so is it where we live? God has placed us in four very specific places. And last week we gave you a tool, we put it back out again. So if you weren't here last week or if you missed, there's a magnet that's attached either behind your chair or to the chair that's in front of you that says, hey, I'm right here in the center and who is my neighbor that exists around me? You know what? I'll encourage you, take a couple of them Use one for each different area so that you can write on them. It's okay. Write on it. Write who your neighbors are because if you're like me, you forget. I walk away and I forget. Not because they're not important, but because I just forget things. It's probably the, the habit of being a guy, right? We just face something that you ladies just cannot possibly understand, that we are very one-track-minded. It's only about what it is that we're thinking about at that one moment, which usually is food, football, or fun. Let's call it that. We've got kitchen work. All right. <laughs> so now over the first few weeks of the series, right, we have looked at, we have looked at and identified the source of our neighboring, right? We've also looked at the why of our neighboring. And last week we looked at the who of our neighboring. And today we're going to turn the corner. Now, by the way. Some of you are probably still like me, and when I said we identified the who of, of, of our neighboring, what, you really, what I really mean is sort of. Some of us may still be working out the who of our neighboring, right? We're still figuring out who all of our neighbors are in all of those different areas that we talked about last week. And that's okay. But the real question I want us to focus on today is the how. The how of neighboring. Does Jesus or the Bible tell us anything about how it is that we are supposed to be a neighbor? Is there some sort of guideline or an outline that we should follow to be a good neighbor? Well, I tell you what, let's look at our text today and let's see what it has to say. So if you got it with me, starting in verse 29, it says this. But it says he, and this is the lawyer talking right here, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? It's the question we looked at last week. And Jesus replied to him, 
He said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers. They stripped him, and they beat him, and then they departed. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road. And we saw him, he passed by on the other side. And likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and he bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine on those wounds. And then he set him on his own animal and he brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and he gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. And Jesus looking at the, the lawyer said, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the lawyer said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Let's pray. Jesus, I'm so glad that you provided this story for us. Not only a story that began to answer some of the question of who, but so dramatically tackles the idea of how. Jesus, I think that that was the main thrust about what it was that you were doing. And so as we begin to dive into this question, pray more than anything we wouldn't just be hearers of the word only, but Father, that we would be doers. Just give you glory and honor for what it is that you're doing, how you're working things out. May you just be glorified and honored in this moment. Amen. Well, some of you know a little bit about my family. I like to talk about them a lot. Um, I don't get any express written permission before I do that. So um, any stories that, that you get or hear from me, just know that they're just totally designed to embarrass the rest of my family, right? Um, no, they're really not. But uh, I have a, an eight-year-old daughter. Um, her name is Addison, and uh, she is a burgeoning baker, right? Now, some of you already know some of this story because you were there and have witnessed this firsthand, but recently my daughter has been watching Kids Baking Championship on Hulu, right? She loves this show. These like eight, nine, 10, 11, and 12-year-old kids are competing, and um, there are some judges there, and they throw these crazy challenges about baking a cake, and then in the middle of while they're baking the cake, they're like, and we want you to add um, some sort of fruit to it. And so these kids are, have to like figure out how whatever it is that they're like chocolate meringue pie now gets some sort of fruit on it, right? And so they have to be incredibly creative. And so she has been watching this and, and um, ingesting it, and she has decided that she wants to cook too. So the other day, she goes down the stairs, unbeknownst to her mom and I, and she begins to cook. Yep, she decided that she wanted to make some brownies. Brownies happen to be one of my wife's favorite things, right? And so she was like, I'm going to do something really nice for my mom. She had the who all figured out about who it was that she was making something for. Now the problem was, we didn't have any brownie mix. 
It's okay. She'd been watching Kids Making Championship. She knew what to do. So in a bowl, she put some eggs and some flour and some sugar. All right, we're off to a good start. But then came dehydrated strawberry fruit pieces, brown sugar, and I'm not really sure what else went into the mixture. Thankfully, thankfully, in the middle of her baking extravaganza, some friends showed up on our doorstep and we still owe our lives to you. I just want you to know, right? Because she wanted to surprise us, and as good parents, we allowed her to surprise us. But as a great neighbor, Erin stepped in and made sure that A, we put it in a cooking safe container, and B, that we cooked it for a really long time at the right temperatures. And Erin got to sample it too. Fortunately, fortunately, we're still here, but here's the problem. Here's the problem for my daughter. She didn't have the how on baking brownies. She had no recipe that she was trying to follow or outline of what it was that she was trying to do. So she was just blindly trying to make up what it was that she was going to do. And what happened was rather interesting. You know, I think that the same is true for you and I. A lot of times we decide that we're going to make up our own rules and our own way about how it is that we're going to love other people. We're going to do it on our own terms. And when we begin to do that, it doesn't always turn out quite right. And so the question mark that I had as I came to this was, is there some sort of an outline that Jesus gives to help us to understand how to love our neighbor? Well, I think that Jesus' answer to the question of who was really how. I think Jesus' answer to this question was really more about how to be a neighbor than it was about who is our neighbor. Now, last week we looked at that question, who is my neighbor? And I don't know about you, but if you were me up here, I felt incredibly forced talking about the who because Jesus is asked who, and then he launches off into this story. He's like, well, there's this certain man. Well, he doesn't give a name to the man. He doesn't tell you anything about the man. There's nothing, no one's got any indication about who this certain man is that begins on a journey. So he sets up the entire stage. This certain man gets beat up and he's lying off the side of the road. And then, and then, as we were talking about it last week, about this who, we began to talk about what the lawyer would have thought about who the neighbor was. Well, this passage didn't tell us who the lawyer thought the neighbor was. We had to go back to Leviticus 19.18, where it talked about this first time that this idea of loving your neighbor as yourself showed up. And right before it, we found that you should not do these things to your brother, to your countrymen. And so we had to infer what we knew was being taught in the Jewish culture that this referred to all Jews. This is how you treat another Jew. But it wasn't in Jesus' text that this is what was going on. And so when I walked away, I felt like, oh, this is incredibly forced to say that this is who our neighbor is. Now, it's not wrong. We didn't say anything wrong last week about saying that neighboring starts next door. But it just didn't feel like that's the question that Jesus was answering. And the reason is, it's because it wasn't. 
In fact, if you notice at the very end of the story, Jesus finishes the whole story, and he turns back to the lawyer, and he says to the lawyer, he says to him, who do you think proved or acted like a neighbor? He doesn't ask him, who is the neighbor in the story? He doesn't say to him, who do you now think your neighbor is? He says, who do you think the neighbor, who do you think acted like the neighbor? Now, I really love that Jesus answers this idea of how over who. I love it for a couple reasons, but one of them, if you've been with us for a long time, you know that back in January, if you haven't been with us, I'm going to tell you, right? In January, we did a series where we started in Genesis, and for the first six weeks, we walked through the first ten chapters of Genesis. Now, the first, very first chapter of Genesis is God's story of the beginning. Now, the problem with that story, for many of us that are sitting in the room, is we go, well, God has one story about how it all began, and science has a whole different story over here about how it began. So do I believe what God said, or do I believe what the Bible said? Or some people go, here's what I need to do. I'm just going to take both those things, and I'm going to marry them somewhere in the middle. And I'm going to create a how based on these two things that I believe are both true. And here's what we came to. Now, you can disagree with me about a lot of things about what takes place in that chapter. And that's okay. I'm okay with your disagreement with me. But at the end of the chapter, here's what I said about it. That that chapter is more about the who than it is about the how. It all points to God is the one who does the creating. He is the creator. In fact, I love Job. Right? Job is a man who he struggles through and God allows all kinds of things to happen inside of his life. If you ever feel bad about what's going on in your world, just go read Job. You'll feel a whole lot better about your world, I promise. Right? And at the end of the story of Job, Job and God have a conversation. And God says to Job, where were you when I created everything? Ooh, I wasn't there. Neither was Job. And so at the end of the day, when I read Genesis chapter 1, I go, there's a whole lot more about the who than the how that I need to be concerned about in Genesis chapter 1. And the who is God. I wasn't there to know how he did. But Jesus in this one, when he's asked a question about who, he says, wait, wait, time out. Who is not the question that we need to be worried about? How is the question this time? And so he flips the script for just a moment on this lawyer about how it is that we needed to love. So when it comes to neighboring, the who is not the question as much as the how. The who is not the question as much as the how. And I believe that through this story that Jesus shares, he begins to unfold the how about how it is that we should love other people, right? Jesus gives us a template to L-O-V-E, our neighbor. So if you're taking notes, write this down. Here's the first thing that I think that he shows us and that he wants us to know is that we need to learn to lean in, right? We need to learn to lean in. Now, Jesus tells the story that we just read, the story of the Good Samaritan, Right? He tells it in response to that question of who is my neighbor. Now here's one of the things that we don't know. 
We don't know if this story is a real story. We don't know if this story is about real events or something that really happened. It could be, possibly, that it's just a made-up story that Jesus used in order to teach and prove his point. We don't know. There are some that say it was totally a real story. There's others that are like, no, it was not a real story. I'm going to tell you, we don't know. We don't know which one it is. But as the scene unfolds, as the stage is all set for everything, Jesus drops something into this story. Right? And if you've got your Bibles open, I want you to just underline, highlight, star, circle, box, whatever it is, these three words. Because he says, now by chance. Right? So here it is. The man is walking down the road. He's beaten. He's half dead. He's laying there. And now by chance. Now by chance, a priest comes walking by. What are the odds, right? A priest comes walking by. Who should be able to help this guy? Well, of course a priest would help this guy. So it's a great chance that this guy has done that. Oh, and by the way, the very next one says, and likewise, in other words, by chance again, right? By chance again, a Levite walks by. Now, I don't know about you, but I think this guy was pretty like a guy. I mean, how many people can have a priest and a Levite walk by them in the same day when they need help? This guy should have gone and bought a lottery ticket. He had some incredible chance on his side, right? Now by chance. I don't know about you, but I don't think this was much of a coincidence, right? David Platt talks about cosmic coincidences, and then people talk about that. And he's like, now by chance this guy happens to have this priest walk by. And as if that cosmic coincidence wasn't enough, then a Levite walks by. Look, in your life, there are things that happen, and you look back at them, and you're like, hmm, this probably didn't all just happen by chance, right? In fact, what I love that David Platt says, he says, God's got the whole game rigged. I love that, right? Because very little, very little, I would argue, happens by chance. And so these two guys happen to walk by. Now, you know what I find really interesting, though, is the lawyer's lack of response at this moment. These two guys come by, right? And even if this was, if this was a real story, right, and this is really what happened, and these, this priest and this Levite was to walk by and have not offered any help, right, the lawyer says nothing in their defense. If it's a made-up story, the lawyer still doesn't say, I object, that's not really how these people would have acted. Instead, there is nothing from the lawyer at this moment. Complete silence. No objection. Leading the witnesses. No nothing. In fact, what it leads me to believe is, is that this is what would have been known for a priest or a Levite to have done. Now, some have tried to make some excuses for them. They've said, you know what? Here's what was happening. These guys, they were, they were, headed, to, they were headed to the temple. They were headed to church. And they didn't want to get dirty before they got there. And so because of that, they didn't act on anything. They didn't engage with anything. 
You know, the, the text starts off and it says a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. He was going from Jerusalem to Jericho. You know what was in Jerusalem? The temple. The church was in Jerusalem. These guys weren't headed to the church. They were headed home from church. They'd already sat in and heard the teachings about everything that was going on, and they were headed home to their families. And the teachings and the things that they had just heard I think Jesus tells us something very powerful about all three individuals, about the priest, about the Levite, and about the Samaritan. When reading the text, it says, when the priest saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, when the Levite came to the place and he saw him, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, you notice what all three of them did? All three of them saw the same person. All three of them saw the same thing. And I think Jesus is telling us something incredibly powerful here when it comes to this idea about learning to lean in. And it's this, it's that looking isn't loving. Looking isn't loving. You know, sometimes we say, especially this time of the year, seeing isn't believing. Well, I want you to know that I think that looking isn't loving. Seeing didn't cause either the priest or the Levite to stop. Their piety did not cause either of them to pause. Instead, they just continued on and ignored the things that they had heard and knew because they were going home. They didn't want to be inconvenienced by what they saw. James, who's the half-brother of Jesus, uh, he says it this way in James chapter 1. He says, But I urge you, brothers, to be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. He looks at himself, he goes away, and at once he forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but instead a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Being no hearer who I'm incredibly guilty of that one, right? I come to church on a Sunday morning. I hear a message. Most of the time I give a message. And I walk out on Monday and I forget what it is that I said. That's what these guys were doing, right? They just heard about the loving God, right? And because of the loving God, they should be able to turn all of that love and love their neighbor and understand that that in turn is then loving God by doing all of that. But instead, they have forgotten what the loving God looks like and they walk right on by. You know, we can't look out and see what's happening in our world and call that 
level. We can't watch the TV and see all the things that are going. We can't sit on Facebook and read the stories or go on Facebook and type in our opinions about things and call that loving. That's not loving. It's religious hypocrisy. You know, hypocrisy is when we that's us as Jesus followers claim to believe one thing, but instead we go and do another. Now, I don't want you to get confused about this because oftentimes I, I hear people say, well, I don't like to go to church because of, they're all religious hip hypocrites. And what they really mean is, is that we're human, right? Because as humans, we fail. And failing is not hypocrisy, okay? That's not what hypocrisy is. We are not superhumans that are, are, are sin-free and, and perfect beings. In fact, if you're perfect here, I'm going to urge you, as soon as we're done, walk out and never come back ever again because I'm not perfect and nobody else in here is perfect and we don't want to mess you up. <laughs> the only place that I have room for somebody who's perfect here is for Jesus to be in our midst who is the perfect one. That's the only perfection that gets to be allowed in here. And so when something happens and it doesn't go right, when we mess up on a, a video clip playing at the wrong time, when we hit a wrong chord, when we say the wrong thing, it's okay, you know why? Because I'm not perfect! And we're not trying to be perfect. But here's what hypocrisy is. It is when, it is when we pretend to be doing what we know is right. We pretend to be doing what we know is right while actively not doing it. Hmm. Hypocrisy is looking and forgetting. Hearing and not doing. Look, looking does not always lead to compassion. The first two guys, they look and know compassion. But the Samaritan looked and he had compassion. But check this out. Compassion always culminates in action. Compassion always culminates in to action. You know what I think happened to the priest and the Levite? I stole this term from my friend Paul. I think they had compassion fatigue. He told me you'd laugh at that some more. I think they had compassion fatigue. Right? Here it is that they, um, they see all of the struggles of the world. They know what it's supposed to be like. They know what God created things to be like. They know that there's fallenness that exists. And day in and day out, they walk past the beggars that are there on the sides of the street that are just asking for anything that they possibly can. And before long, they just became compassion fatigued. Their hearts no longer were able to feel compassion for what it was that they saw around them. You know, I think we live in that same world today, don't we? Everybody says, see me, see me, see what's going on. See all these things that are around here. They're like, here's all the footage of the fires. Have, have compassion on that. Here's all the natural disasters that have happened with the hurricanes. Have compassion on that. Here's um, the, the kids that don't have a home. Have compassion on that. Here's kids in Africa that, that don't have any food. Have compassion on that. Here's little puppies and dogs.
dogs that they, they're not being taken care of. Have compassion on that. And before long, we grow callous to all of it. And we become compassion fatigued because of everybody screaming the same thing at us. Have compassion, have compassion, have compassion. And we're like, I don't know if I have that much compassion. Out of all three of them, the Samaritan is the only one that had compassion. And his compassion led him to action. You know, a few years ago, Andy Stanley interviewed Jeff Foxworthy. That'd be fun, right? One, one day, right? One day we'll... Hey, I'll send him a note, all right? We'll see what happens. <laughs> but he interviewed Jeff Foxworthy because Jeff had started working at downtown Atlanta Mission. And in the midst of the interview, he was like, Jeff, do you just like, do you do this for, for everybody? Like anybody that has a, 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 a need or like, are you just, just like, are you just a bleeding heart? And Jeff was like, no. He said, I'm far from it. He's like, well, Jeff, why in the world did you begin helping out in this ministry, but yet you're not doing all these other places? And in the midst of that conversation, Andy said this, he said, loving our neighbor, loving our neighbor is about doing for one what we wish we could do for everyone. Doing for one what we wish we could do for everyone. There's an old preacher story, and I'm, Justin, I'm glad you're here because TFW just shared this story again recently and reminded me of it. But it's of a young boy that is walking on the beach. And the tide has just rolled out and stranded on the beach are hundreds if not thousands of starfish. And the boy is walking down the beach and he's picking up the starfish and he's throwing them back into the ocean. And this young man comes up alongside of the boy and he, he just wants to try to encourage the boy with the fruitless nature of what it is that he's doing. And he says to him, he says, he says son, do you do you think that you can save all of these starfish? And the young boy looked back at him with a blank stare and looked out at the, the vastness of what was on the beach and shook his head and said, no, probably not. So the young man, feeling like he had done his job and trying to save the boy from this fruitless effort of what he was doing, walked off, and as he was walking off, the young boy picked up another starfish, and as he got ready to throw it back into the ocean, he turned and he said, hey, mister, he chunked the starfish in, it mattered to that one, he walked a little bit further, and he picked up another one, and he said, and that one, he may not have been able to affect the vastness of what was going on. But for the one that he did pick up, it made all of the difference. Let me make a quick application of this point for just a second. Yesterday was National Adoption Day. National Adoption Day. In the state of Arizona, there are about 5,000 kids. 5,000 kids that are ready for adoption right now at this very moment. In the state of Arizona, there are 500 
Southern Baptist churches. Evangelical churches, there's well over 1,500 of them. Do you realize just the Southern Baptist churches for just a moment, if 10 families were to step up and to say, hey, we'll take on a child, that we could tomorrow eradicate the need for adoption inside of the state. You say, well, I, I can't take on all 5,000 of those kids. I know. I can't either. But what a difference it would make in one kid's life. Listen, loving our neighbor is not about equal love. Loving our neighbor is not about equal gifts to everyone. That's socialism. Not loving our neighbor. Loving our neighbor is about leaning in. Leaning into the one. To the, to, the, to the story that moves you. To the one that God draws you to. To the one that your heart beats for, for compassion towards. That's not everybody and everything. But it does mean that we have to constantly be praying, God, is this a place that you want me to lean in at? His answer is not always yes. But his answer is not always no. And our job is to say, with a compassionate heart that leads us towards action, and to be ready and willing to lean in, to dive all the way in, and to do for this one person the things that we couldn't do for everybody, but we wish that we could. And to say, God, is this the one that you want me to do something with? God, is this the one that you want me to lean into? We have to learn to lean in and to pray and to see. Don't just be lookers and as such not loving, but be willing to lean in. You know what I think more than anything? Now by chance. You know what I think? I think the Levite and the priest missed their chance. They had a chance to lean in and to do something that was different and to make a difference in a man's life. And instead of seeking the Father, neither one of them did any sort of seeking God as to what it was that they would have them do. They should have. They should have known that. That should have been part of who they were, but they didn't. And so instead, God uses a Samaritan to show what leaning in can look like and how much difference it can make in one man's life. I think those two missed their chance. And I don't think our God is a God of chance, but he does give us chances about being obedient to him. God, I thank you. I thank you that you are a God of second and third and fourth and fifth chances. Because God, if you weren't, I know that I would miss my chances all over the place.
I pray that my heart would be sensitive, that I wouldn't suffer from compassion fatigue. But God, instead, that I would rest myself in you. And that I would be willing to be prompted and to follow whatever it is that you're calling me to do and to lean in in the moment that you call me to lean in. That's how I want to love my neighbors. Earlier I said that I don't believe that any of you are here by chance. And I said that God is our neighbor. In fact, he was the only good neighbor. You know, we're getting ready to come into the Christmas season. And one of the names that was given to Jesus is the name of Emmanuel. It means God with us. And it's the picture of the fact that God sent Jesus. He came in the form of a man in order to be with us so that he could be close to us. But there still exists a problem. And the problem is our sin. And I don't believe it's by chance that you're here today. And I don't believe it's by chance that you're going to hear this next part of this message. And that is, is that God wants to have a relationship with you. But in order to do that, you have to say, I give it all up. I give it all up. I no longer want to be the one doing life my own way, but I want to follow you, Jesus. I want to have a relationship with you. And if you're at that moment and you're like, I don't want to miss my chance to get to know Jesus and to get to spend all of eternity with these people that know and want to love and love each other. At the end of the service, I'll be in the back of the room. I want to just encourage you to come by and say, I don't want to miss my chance. How do I begin a relationship with Jesus? Jesus, I pray. I pray maybe there was somebody in the room who didn't listen to another thing that we said just heard us talk about not missing the chance of eternity. And I pray that this would be the moment that they, their hearts would be moved. They would take action because of it. I give you all of the glory, all of the honor. In just a moment, our ushers are going to come forward. We're going to take our our offering. Listen, if you're with us for the very first time, here's all that we ask of you is that you would share with us the welcome card. We just want to be able to send you a welcome text, let you know that we're so glad that you were here today with us um, because we are so blessed that you chose to worship with us today. If you've been with us for a while, then we ask you to continue on in this moment of worship by loving God through your gifts and your offerings. It allows us to continue to do the work that we do, but it is totally about saying, God, I love you, and I'm doing this through and because of you as a way to love you. Those of you that are taking the offering, if you'll come forward, we're going to pray for the offering. Father, I thank you again for this moment right now and for the generosity that exists inside of this room. God, I am continually blown away by your people and the way that they are living out and being your church. I thank you that you have called us here and called us to be in this place.
to be these kinds of neighbors. And we just continue to give you the glory and the honor in your name.